0: You're listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, with a very hoarse voice, Julie Hockheiser-Ilkovich. In this episode, we are bringing you to an incredible New York Wiki live event featuring the amazing Beth Comstock, former vice chair of General Electric, author of Imagine It Forward, and 2016 New York Wiki Matrix winner. This self-described troublemaker shares valuable advice and personal anecdotes during her discussion with Jackie Kelly, President and Chief Client Officer at Dentsu Aegis Network. Beth has such valuable career advice to share in this conversation, and I particularly love her thoughts about overcoming introversion. We hope you enjoy this conversation between Jackie Kelly and Beth Comstock, and please subscribe to Coffee Break with New York Wiki on Apple Podcasts for more episodes featuring live events and exclusive one-on-one interviews. And please don't forget to rate and review our show. Thanks for listening.
1: So Beth, I'd love to start off by um, just the basics. Um, What motivated you to write the book?
2: Um, my husband said I was always going to write it. I don't know how he, how he figured that out, and I didn't, but um, I, um, I wrote it for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I just wanted to document the kind of messiness of being associated with change and innovation in an organization. Um, it's really messy, and I just thought I wanted to document that. It's been a particularly interesting time the past couple of decades as we've navigated the physical and digital, and I just wanted to share that. And to your question, Jackie, I especially wanted to um, sort of write something for people mid to early career who um, are so often trying to figure it out, want some tools, some advice, a pocket of encouragement. Um, and I felt I needed that, I still need it. And, um, and I, a lot of the people I worked with in the course of my career, especially at GE, that's who I really loved working with. Mm-hmm. And um, and I spent a lot of time there. And so um, they were a sounding board for me and gave me right. kind of confidence to do that. Right. Well,
1: it's, it, I will say the book is a real gift, too. Um, I'm probably in that latter third, but um, there's much of this that I think a lot of us can um, empathize with. Um, if I were to summarize the book, I, I thought of it in four buckets, which is the way I think we can talk through it. Um, the first was in finding your voice. Um, the second was in using that voice. And then third, having the courage to be uncomfortable and knowing how to drive some of the change that you ultimately drove. And then finally, techniques that I would love for you to share at the end around um, navigating sort of the relentless pace of change. And again, techniques yeah. that you've had. I love
2: now. the way you bucketed those. Those are really good. I um, Another way I was thinking about it, I'm gonna take yeah. those. Uh, another way I was thinking about it too for me was trying to, t- to connect through story. So I really tried to, you'll, you'll see it's a very different kind of book. It's not your typical mm-hmm. business book in that it's very personal. Um, connect through the tools, the, practice, the practices, and then a bit of a behavior change challenge, sort of yeah. me as a bit of a coach to challenge you to see what you can do. So those were kind of what was in my mind as I was putting yeah, it together. Yeah, it really comes
1: through. So let's start with the personal part because um, I, knowing you as a professional, I was really touched by how personal the book was. Can you share with the group some of the personal anecdotes that you included that maybe you wrestled with and why, you, why, why they were so important to the book?
2: Um, well, a couple of them, um, I, I started the book out with talking about my divorce, which is not what you'd expect in a business book. Um, and I felt it was very important because it was a huge upheaval and change in my life when I, re- I was in my mid-20s, um, choosing to get a divorce as a sin- and be- choosing to become a single mother because my career took off just as my- I became a mother. Um, and Mm -hmm. it was very personal because honestly I hadn't really talked that much about it Um, I hadn't talked I mean I talked a little bit obviously to my daughter but to put something like that out there in a very public platform um, was a was just a big risk for myself and my family I mean I was worried about how my daughter would think about it um, even how my ex-husband would think about it Um, my mother cried when she read it and um, you know, it was, it was painful from that yeah. perspective. So that one was, um, that was one. And there was another story um, that I, um, that it, my, it was a story I, I shared. Um, I was just trying to show like, also trying to make it a business book, but just say we kind of bring our whole selves, right? And so I had to talk about being a mother because that's who I was. And I shared a story about, um, I, we took, I took another job and we were in the process of moving. And my older daughter was at camp. And I didn't have a way or didn't tell her we were moving. And she comes home, like her friends drop her off, and there's a for sale sign on the front yard. And it was not good and she was like 11 and you know she's like oh my god like we you know are you moving you're not going to tell me like imagine you're 11 and you come right. home and your parents have a for sale sign and it was this it was this fluffy sheep sign it was in montclair new jersey i forget the realtor name but they had a sheep and it was fluffy sheep. you couldn't miss this fluffy sheep in our front yard so there was no hiding it. Like, no, it's not us or whatever. Anyway, Aww. and that was very painful. But I felt also very raw um, because it was something that you know I, I was miss efficiency. Get it done. I'm going to get it done. And I didn't tell my daughter we were moving. Right. right. And so like, right. I'm not proud of that. And right. I'm sure it's something she's not proud of either <laughs> of her mother. But anyway, I felt it was important to share that you have to confront those kind of things. Yeah. Um, in the course of your life. You
1: also talk about being an introvert, which I'm sure there's, if you were, had to be introvert or extrovert, how many of you would say introvert? All right, so, so tell us about leading as an introvert because you will find Beth finds it to be the killer combination. So get ready, all you introverts. And another
2: one I've learned is the ambivert, somebody who feels like you're both. And that's what I think yeah. I had to learn that I have a bit of extrovert in me and I have to kind of find it somewhere. And so, you, you know, you kind of turn on one or the other situationally. So I do share some stories. Um, I am, it doesn't seem like it here, especially as the night goes on, you're going to be, will she ever shut up? But I am not, uh, I am a quiet, by nature, quiet person. Um, I grew up um, reserved, shy, and introverted. And if any of you have read Susan Cain's book, I highly recommend Mm -hmm. it. Uh, Really, I I found that very helpful to learn that introversion is also how you manage your energy. You need to conserve your energy. So you kind of give it all away and you're kind of spent um and um she calls it quiet because we tend to be the quieter people i'm never accused of being the life of the party so don't i'm I'm never because i i held back and so uh, early on i just realized that i was holding myself back in the course of my career because i wasn't putting myself out there i wasn't going out to meet people i wasn't I, i would show up in meetings and not ask a question i wouldn't talk and you know, you're like, why am I here? So there were points I recognized where that held me back. And I felt it was important to share that and also say there are good parts about being an introvert. We're observers. We're listeners. We're good synthesizers. But if I can, there's one story that maybe I think would be relevant to you here, especially given where everybody is. I was 30 years old. Um, I was head of communications at Turner Broadcasting in New York. And I had worked there for a year. And a lot of what I did was often accompany Ted Turner when he got an award. For those oh, of you who terrible. don't know who Ted is, he was the Richard Branson of his day, this media kind of loudmouth, provocative media titan. And um, I worked for him for a year, and he did not know my name. And I remember we were at the UN. I was pregnant with my second daughter. I had on a hideous maternity dress. It was so hideous, it looked like the wallpaper. And I still remember... <laughs> The feeling at that moment, like, no one knows I'm here. I'm blended in with the wallpaper. (laughs) I maybe have my head sticking out. And I remember distinctly, that's why I shared it, I have got to change this. Like, this is not acceptable. I'm good, but no one knows it, and they don't know me, and I'm holding myself back. So I I decide I'm going to change that. I'm going to reintroduce myself to him. And um, he goes to the men's room. He, and I go, now's my chance. And so I position myself outside the men's room. Um, and I'm like, hi, Ted. I'm, and I never get my name out. I shake his hand. It was really wet. So he washed his hands. <laughs> You'll be happy to know. And he looks at me like, what do you got to say for yourself? And I lost my nerve. I looked down. He walked away. And um, and yet, I was incredibly proud of myself. Right. And that was one of those moments, that introvert moment, where it was so awkward. And so to me, my journey of introversion was often awkward. And yeah. yet, I was really proud of myself. And that was really my kind of antidote to get out of my own way, give myself these small challenges, just small steps yeah. forward where I would challenge myself as awkward as it was, I did it. He never knew my name. Like if you ask him today, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I was proud of myself because yeah. I put myself out there. And so that's kind of what it meant to me. I got to kind of work around that. Yeah, you have other tips. I'm going to jump to this. Um, you had other
1: tips about uh, challenges you would give yourself to push through that introvert yeah. and make sure that in that room you were noticed. What yeah. were some of those other So like to today,
2: group? after this, we're going to have a, there's going to be a bit of a, you know, get, people mingle. Um, That's a sheer panic to me. Any fellow introverts, (laughs) you would recognize that. Uh, Maybe you do a loop around the room. Uh, Always on the perimeter. Always on the perimeter. Always on the perimeter. Easy exit. We're the ones by the chip bowl or the bar. Um, We go to the ladies' room multiple times. Exactly. Exactly. You got it, right? And then I would go home. And then I'd say like, okay, what a missed opportunity. So I'd have to give myself a challenge. Okay, I'm going to go and I'm just going to meet one person. And then the next time it'd be two. And again, recognize the first interaction's awkward, you know. And I'd have to find somebody who looked approachable. Um, So, and then that—that's that that was my my hack. Uh, And then similarly, at at, in a business setting, to ask a question, you know, the fear of oh my gosh, they're going to think I'm dumb. What if my question isn't good? Somebody else has it. And so I would have to literally do my homework, write it down, say, okay, you're not going to leave this room until you ask that question. And if somebody had asked it, then I'd freak out. So it was those kind of just small yeah, exactly. challenges. And they sound stupid if you're, if like you're, one, you're not introverted, you're first of all going, that sounds really pathetic. But it was the way I felt. Right, exactly. And you have to recognize I am afraid. And it's just a little bit of everyday courage. I mean, I'm not talking like burning, running into a burning building and saving a granny courage. This is a little bit of just kind of putting yourself out there courage. Yeah. So it was, it, was
1: a, it was impressive to me that, that is, that's your inner voice because I see the, I, I see the impact that you've had. Um, and when I look at how you begun to, to really put yourself out there and use your voice, you talk a lot about how transformative work begins at home. It begins within yourself first. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the self-permission aspect of that that you share and then the difference between the gatekeepers and the goalkeepers? Because I found that to be really helpful for, I think, this audience.
2: So this notion of really what I did with Ted Turner is I gave myself permission just to introduce myself. Um, And so it just struck me in myself that I needed kind of... Permission granting. In fact, I almost called my book Permission Granted because I think it's such a fundamental issue of making change is that you have to give yourself permission to get out of your way and make take small risks, small steps forward. And I realized it with the colleagues I worked with um, that sometimes it wasn't enough if I said I got your back. Like, I'm giving you permission. Often they would say, nah, I can't do it. And I can't tell you how many times I'd have people give me these alibis for why they wouldn't try something. Um, you know, I just I don't have the, I don't have the instructions, or I don't have enough budget, or my you know what my boss will never go for that. Did you ask your boss? No, but I know they'll never go for it. Okay. Um, the investors won't okay. let me. My board won't let me. Many of those were probably valid excuses. Right. You see this right? right. And um, what I realized is they just were needed to give themselves permission to kind of try. They were alibis. And so mm-hmm. I developed for me and the, my colleagues just a simple hack. I literally kept a stack of permission slips. I'd do it at a class <laughs> like this at GE. It's in the book. And I would, it's just a simple one like you had when you were in school, right? You, maybe you forged your mother's signature. <laughs> I didn't. I was too afraid. Um, yeah. But um, I, I give myself permission to, and just it's just a little hack. Just I guarantee next time you think about it, you'll you'll summon that little bit of courage. And so I would give them out out to people, and and again to your second point, the gatekeepers and goalkeepers. So what often happens is you're trying in organizations, as well-meaning as most of your colleagues are, we all encounter. Um, gatekeepers and when when Jackie and I say that word you probably conjure up someone's face look at them think about right that. think about a gatekeeper <laughs> that um, has challenged you in your career and what do you think about them they don't want a better way forward they, they protect you from going through the gate that's what I mean as opposed to a goalkeeper and not in the soccer sense the goalkeeper who helps you make the goal um, the gatekeepers they will not let you through um, they they mm-hmm. hold on to their power, what little power often they have. And so you're kind of giving yourself permission to go around that because you see a better way, because you believe there's a better way. And I just got frustrated after a while of telling myself I can't do that, believing right. that there was, there was no way, that um, there were just one too many of those instances that I was like, no, i got to find a better way to, to do that. And so this idea for me of no is not yet. Um, you tell me yeah. no, and I hear... Not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say it's easy, but I gave myself permission to say, "Oh, you mean no? It's not yet." Right. Okay. Um, and so, anyway, I document some stories on that, but I think that's kind of the mindset yeah. there. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's
1: it's, i I'm I'm you already. I don't need to pre-sell the book. You guys have it, but that is it's really instructive because um, you persevere through a lot. The notion of perseverance is well. I think well. all
2: of us do. I mean, again, how many times I bet do people um, come in with an idea? to you, Jackie, and you know, the idea's just not ready yet. And maybe you mm-hmm. say no, or you're in a meeting, someone else says no, and you never hear from them again. Right, instead right? Like, of building on it, encouraging Right, and what do you think? Okay. You think like, well, they must not have liked that idea. Right. Right. So it, to me, it's a bit of, I learned it's a bit of a test. You know, the no is how passionate am I? Maybe i mm-hmm. not understood stood the first time. Maybe mm-hmm. the time is wrong. Right. Um, and so hopefully Keep you've building. got a good leader like Jackie, who I, I'm sure gives good feedback. You know, if someone shows up and says, Jackie, can I pitch Bloomberg ice cream? Right. I bet you're going to say no. Um, and here's why. Right. But if they have another idea, hopefully they come back. And so it's that give and take that has to happen. exactly. So you have, um,
1: you transitioned through many different roles, back and forth between NBC and GE and back to NBC. There's other roles that you passed on. Yeah. Um, In each case, uh, you may have uh, studied it, but in the end you followed a gut. You had an instinct. Um, can you tell the group a little bit about the roles that you had, and, and what was the what was in your what was the fire in your belly telling you to do one thing or the other?
2: So I started out. I wanted to be a journalist. I, I majored in biology and decided I wasn't going to go to med school. I wanted to be a journalist. I actually wasn't very confident, so therefore I wasn't very good. So pretty quickly I got behind the scenes. So I built my career uh, first as a publicist, and then I got into marketing, and then in innovation. So that's just the short story. And I just. In the, especially in the PR world, I kind of gravitated to take jobs that other people didn't want or seemingly didn't make sense. And a good example was, um, I went to C- I, NBC, long story, all the back and forth, but I was at CBS doing entertainment publicity and I got an opportunity to come back to NBC. But it was in the 90s, and NBC News had almost been shuttered because they had their original fake news incident um, where um, they tried to blow up a truck to fake some coverage, and it brought, almost brought the news division to, to its knees. They had a job open, as head of communications. No one wanted it but me. Um, and I can't tell you why. Um, it Truth be told, I got... Um, no more money. <clears throat> no more money to leave CBS to go back to NBC. But I got a better title. I went from director to VP. But I just had to do it. And to right. this day, I cannot tell you why. It just felt like I wanted to <laughs> be part of that. It ended up being, the to this day, probably the best job, most formative job I've ever had. Why? Because it allowed me to realize I was an entrepreneur inside of a big company. I worked with mm-hmm. a team that had nothing to lose. Like we had nothing to lose. So anything was uh, was poss- possible and I got to be part of creating and being part of a really great team. So um, that was that was a real gut check for yeah. me. And, and having had that then gave me confidence in other times. I went to GE from NBC. Who does that? Nobody in media wanted to work at GE. Right. I did. And um, Jack Welch calls, says, "Come and work here." And I don't know why. It just felt like something I couldn't turn down. So it just became a yeah. bit of a, of a confidence booster over time. And what about
1: when Steve Jobs called?
2: Yeah. So um, that was a. That's one I shared because, it's um, it's complicated and it's mixed emotion. So. Um, my last assignment at NBC was a really tough one, and I document it. It's really, I, I, call, it the, I call it agitated inquiry, which is a really nice phrase for conflict and really horrible conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a lot of reason to want to leave NBC at that time. I was not doing well, and I wasn't well liked and by many there. Um, and so I worked with Apple, and they said, hey, come and work for us. And I ended up uh, twice being uh, turning down an opportunity and twice being put in an opportunity where Steve Jobs was calling. Now, let me tell you, this would have been mid, mid-2000s, mid so about 2006, six seven. The iPhone hadn't yet been launched, but iTunes had. That's how I came to work with them because I was doing digital at NBC. And um, it just it didn't seem the right thing for me. I wanted to do content. At the time, they were really focused on technology. I couldn't imagine forward, so I failed at my own kind of challenge. And um, I remember sitting down with my husband, and we were at the kitchen table, and we were going through stock options, and we were like, how good can these ever be? Really?
1: I mean, come on.
2: What can Apple really ever do? And I remember the one thing I remember Steve Jobs saying is, well, he said a couple things. He said, um, but he said, like, watch out, we're gonna take on the world, we're gonna do amazing things here. And every CEO says, says that, that right? right? Um my younger daughter told me if we moved she would threaten she threatened yeah. she'd turn goth. And I kinda of thought that wasn't <laughs> the worst thing that could happen if she turned goth, but that was a consideration. Right. I had right, moved my course. older daughter and was that was right. So, so there were a lot of reasons, but I, I shared it not to say, hey, um, because I regretted it at times, certainly when I looked yeah. at those stock options. Um, <laughs> but I regretted it um, because I felt I missed an opportunity to make myself better. I mean, he was mm-hmm. a tough taskmaster, but I think I would have learned. Mm-hmm. But I didn't regret it because it was the right strategic filter. It was not the right job for me. And so I had to come back to understanding that about myself. And that gut check, I couldn't describe why I, I didn't. But you knew. But I knew. Yeah, you
1: know because you know because you know. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. But, but it doesn't you, mean you don't regret Steve it. Steve Jobs, hey, Beth, <laughs>
1: report directly to me. Like, it's
2: it was a... It was a powerful job. And it was kind of a, the second time, it was kind of a weird job. He calls, he's like, hey, can you come out? We'll take a walk. Like, what? Right. Like, that's (laughs) kind of weird. Um, And it was like this amorphous job I had done. I would started clean tech at GE. And he said, I want to do more with clean tech and Apple and green Apple. It was very amorphous. And I I didn't share this part. He, um, it was also kind of weird because he pulled me, we had done the meeting. And he said, come here, I want you to, I want you to come into a meeting with me. It was a meeting of his direct reports, and right. he sits me down at the meeting like I had already joined. And oh, he's like, this is Beth. She's going to come and work here. Um, so that kind of freaked me out. So that yeah. kind of gives you a sense of maybe why I might have been like, yeah. but I haven't decided I'm going to yeah. work here And I'm yet.
1: gamefully employed somewhere else. Yeah. Just put me in front of a bunch of people. Yeah, I mean, there
2: were like five of them or something. Tim yeah. Cook was there. But, um, but anyway, so that just, there were those little things that was just like, huh. Huh. I'm not sure I'm. I'm. This is the right match right. for me, right? You knew. Um, so there are
1: countless examples in the book where you uh, created systematic ways to drive innovation within companies, and I think there's a lot of people in this room that are working in complex, sometimes complex U.S. based companies, sometimes complex global companies, and we all struggle with driving innovation. Can you tell us some of the techniques? I know there's a lot of them, but how you systematically created ways where it just begun to happen.
2: Well, um, I'll try to figure a couple of them. Um, I, I think the one thing we all do in innovation, one, it's an overused word, right? As soon as Jackie says it, probably your eyes glaze over because we're all sick of that word. Yet we're all, why are we sick of it? Because we know we haven't mastered it. Right. Because we've heard too many people talk about it and not do it. So I think what I had to learn painfully is there's a bit of kind of innovation theater where everybody dresses up, they use the right buzzwords, mm-hmm. and I participate in that, in the right, right consultants. We did, like, fun little exercises. Okay, now we're innovative. Like, that didn't really work. Right. So I would recommend, like, that might be helpful to get people situated, but that wasn't enough. Excuse me, so... I think a couple of examples, I think, to me, the biggest learning is um, you have to make space for it. So I do think for most companies, Mm -hmm. we need to create kind of two lanes of operation, um, sort of the core operation, and then the what's new and what's next. And so you have to create a space um, mechanism so that you are seeding experimentation. I think for us, one of the biggest things at GE was this notion of a minimally viable product. It came out of lean startup, but it's really just a prototype. This uh, sort of permission for people to test and learn things, to do it with your customers, to just launch something simple to get it started, to set yourself up to fail earlier so you can learn, that was, that was I think, mm-hmm. a very pivotal thing. The other thing I'm really high on is um, making room for discovery, getting out and discovering change early before it changes and disrupts you. Okay. And so taking groups together on kind of field trips so that we could discover together and learn about the change. Um, some of them could be very simple. You didn't need a big budget. Take our team for field trip Fridays, or maybe we'd go to a new retail store, go to meet a startup, go see a new, me- I just was at the Andy Warhol exhibit. You know, like I might have taken a team to understand, yeah. how did he think about changing mediums? Yeah. And what could we learn about that in business? Um, So I think those things are instructive. The more you can do it as group exercises, not as just you finding things and saying, now you have to change. So that would be my highlight is change and innovation are group exercises, and people have to get engaged. People have to find their way and find the innovation, and it has to be part of the way they work.
1: So the um, you mentioned the gurus that come in. There's one story about where you have GE executives, like, laying on the floor. Yeah. Tell about that one, because that sounded like it was a really weird. It fun was a weird, field trip. Weird.
2: Yeah. yeah, so this was, <laughs> this was um, early in my GE tenure when Jeff Immelt was, had become CEO, and he was new CEO, and it's a good time. It was right after 9-11, and so everything had changed, and certainly in GE and in the world. And so through P&G, I had learned about this cultural anthropologist who was a bit Weird and different. Mm-hmm. Um, he was weird in a GE context, and he wore a black velvet cape. And to this day, probably <laughs> the only consultant who's ever come in wearing a black leather cape. I love it. I mean, black velvet cape. And um, but he had this process to get to your, get through your brain. Um, and he, one of them involved he kind of psychoanalyzed the culture. And he had we had people lying on the floor and writing stories. But it was some of the most powerful research yeah. we had done. And. His method was unconventional, but I liked what the team did. We came together, and we kind of psychoanalyzed ourselves. And so we were willing to just have the culture sit and tell stories, Um, Mm -hmm. simple things like, uh, as an anthropologist, I found these two letters. What do they mean to you, Mm G-E? What do they mean? And getting people to open right. up and tell stories Especially about why the they work there and like the that. heritage. Yeah. And it was really remarkable. And you needed to take people kind of out of what they felt comfortable mm-hmm. to do that. So I love this idea of bringing outside sparks. I think it's really critical to bring outsiders, often who are somewhat, in fact, quite weird. Because what? Mm-hmm. It's not you presenting the weird idea. Right. It's some outside of the, you can go, yeah, I don't know, um, but just stick with me on this one. Right. It still takes courage to It takes to even a bit of courage, the, to, and yeah. I was nervous about that, and I, yeah. I share, I, um, I brought him in to meet Jeff Immelt, and it was a horrible first, uh, first few minutes of the meeting, and that thought bubble, I'm going to be fired, I'm going <laughs> to be fired. Then it ended up, the meeting went well, and at the end, Jeff goes, I wasn't sure about that. I was like, you mean you might have fired me? Oh, you were almost fired, kind of joking, yeah. but... Um, you know, so you ha- I think you have to get to that moment sometimes where you're, yeah. you're kind of that pit in your stomach, yeah. like, I think it's right, but I'm taking a risk. Mm-hmm. And that was one That's of those moments. It is when yeah. you grow.
1: Now, there was a time when Jeff called you and said, you almost
2: were fired, and yeah. you almost were fired. Yeah. Um, honestly, it wasn't until I was writing the book that I found that out. So oh, I, yeah. Um, really? Yeah. yeah. And um, I, um, I, ask him in the course of writing the book I had a co-writer so we sat down with him and and said was there ever a time he told my co-writer said was there ever a time he thought of firing Beth and I was kind of he's like yeah that time she was at NBC and I was kind of annoyed because I was like one I would have liked to have known that right at the time i didn't think i was doing particularly well right but i would have liked to have known that so i you know nbc was a tough the last time was a tough assignment digital change a lot happening and the mistake one of the mistakes i made was i kind of lost perspective Mm -hmm. um i love the line we put in there i sort of like i jumped off the balcony into the mosh pit and i duked it out with my colleagues as opposed to trying to rise above it and bring everybody along it became the cool digital kids against the yeah. Luddite guys right. who just don't get it. That was happening in so many organizations. It, it happens in every, yeah. and I have, right. I've, I've been it may part of been that since today. then. Yeah. Right. But here's what happened to me then. I mean, I would wake up, and the New York Post would have a story. You wake up, and if you're in the New York mm. Post, page six, that's, that's never right. a good day. Yeah. And, um, and it became drive-by shootings with my colleagues, and they'd leak stuff about me in the New York Post. They thought I was a corporate spy. Um, and I didn't help myself by just perpetuating that. Um, I, I, like, became, sort of put myself out there in, a, in ways, like I had my hair blowing in the breeze, like digital's the future. Okay. And I should have probably <laughs> spent the time building more bridges internally. And so, you know, yeah. Jeff saw that. He liked the innovation that team and I were driving. He liked right. what we seeded, but he did you not like, like that yeah. I dove in the mosh pit. Yeah. But he didn't So me- at the end of that, you talk about...
1: Um, a question that you could have asked differently. I won't get this right. So I'm not, le- I'm not leading you because, but it was about, um, walking in with a point of view and instead of, uh, instead of pushing through an ambition, actually asking, what are you trying to accomplish? What's your ambition? Yeah. T- talk about that. Cause this is a good takeaway for all of us.
2: Yeah. I talk a lot about just navigating the conflict. And, um, I, I think just one, if you don't, you get, the- everyone has that it's marketing against sales, right? It's, comms against marketing, we all have it. And so um, really, I think what I could have done differently is what problem are we trying to solve? Let's unite ourselves and really stop and go, what are you trying to accomplish? What am I trying to accomplish? Let's talk about that. I'd gotten advice from somebody in one of my warring tribes. um, You know, take the guy, the the other warrior, out to coffee. Oh, I thought that was the worst advice ever. I can't stand the sight of this guy. I'm going to actually have to sit for coffee with him. But yeah, that would have been really yeah. good advice to remember yeah. this guy had a family. He, you know, I'm not sure I thought he was a nice guy, but he had a family. He had reason to, re- to, to believe in his humanity, and I lost sight of it. So I think in those moments, it's hard. Another thing is maybe just name the conflict something silly, right, like Jell-O. Can you believe we're fighting over Jell-O? Right. Um, you know, again, give yourself some of that perspective. Those are things I've learned since that I wish I had done in those moments.
1: I'm just pulling out, there was a cup you have a quote in there about, um, maybe this was on page six, she'll take out that your kidney it. and you would not even know it was gone.
2: Is that page yeah. six? Yeah, page <laughs> six said, uh, my colleagues said, uh, she's so stealth, she'll take out your kidney and you don't even know it's gone. Well, you know, and, and I'd say that, I'm kind of thinking not that's a compliment. Common, I kind of like that. Yeah. At the time, it was not. Well-intended or well-taken right. at all. And then there were other times they'd say, you know, like, she's failing, nothing, she, you know, I backed I Village. we acquired it, it yeah. bombed. Um, and they'd go, see, she she can't do anything right. And, you know, it hurts when they're your colleagues. I, I had a friend of mine what? who was leading a PR firm, and I was like, can you just help? Can you call and do your stealthy thing and see, like, who's, who's leaking it? They're not going to tell me. And he called, and I remember him saying, like, sit down, because there's no outside force. It's your team that's leaking in, it. it's your colleagues that are leaking. And I just remember being so devastated, yeah, right. so heartbroken. Yeah. Um,
1: it's just a horrible feeling. But what I think is, what we all have to remember is in those darkest moments, because you took that and used it as fuel to go back into GE and keep doing exactly what you were doing. So, again, that fortitude and that perseverance. Cannot be underestimated, but but
2: it's also you can't. Re- you also have to feel bad about it, right? You yeah, you know you're yeah, a human. Right. I remember right. I remember just like I just sick to my stomach over it. But yeah, it does give yeah. you a fortitude. What I really learned out of that, um, I used to take things very personally. I'd take like an idea I was pitching and someone didn't like it. I'd take it very personally or a mistake I made, and out of that because it was so personal. I learned those things I thought before, God, oh my God, they're not personal at all. So right. in that respect, I think it toughened me up in a way I never would have been toughened. I, my skin grew like eight inches thick yeah, out of that. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So I'm going to pause for a second. I have more, but I'm gonna,
1: I want to go out to the audience and see if you guys have any questions based on what you've heard where you want to continue this conversation. Anybody have something that is burning?
3: Um, I just Can want you... you yes. Oh, my name is Timmy friend. Lewis. How are you? Oh, T- Timmy. 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 Um, club name Lisa. Um, And I just want to know this notion of trust. It's not so much a question, so much as something that maybe you could comment on because, you know, you always hear about bringing your whole self to work, and I find that that's just not a plausible reality. I think if you're in the situation where your colleagues are linking to page six, you know, putting yourself out there seems like the opposite thing to do so
2: yeah I think it's such an input to me it trust is everything um and I think that's often where the innovation and change issues break apart in our company because we don't trust the motives of the other because this is often what happened at NBC I found it especially at NBC and some of the other (laughs) media companies I worked I honestly found a little less so at GE but um people would go into a meeting and they'd sit and they'd go yeah yeah, I'm going to do that. Great idea. I love that, Timmy. Love that idea. Yeah. Then they'd walk out and they go, I am never doing that. I'm you have a term sure for that. Timmy, yeah, I call it the grin fuck. That's what, they call, I, <laughs> that's what they called it at NBC. Yeah. And then I learned you've been grin fucked. I mean, it's not a very <laughs> nice phrase, but, but like that is like that starts to make you crazy. You do not trust people when you right. learn they're doing that. So what do you need to do instead? Instead, you need to instill that conflict to say, speak now tell me what you think about the idea, mm-hmm. but yet as a leader, decision made. We're all going right, and you're gonna back it. So I think it's about leadership, and it's about individual accountability, and um, you can't change the whole culture as one team, but you can change how you work as a team. <coughs> so I like this idea of, kind of to me, it's macro climate and mo- microclimate. And so if your team's just you and someone else, could be 50 people, I think there's a contract you make of we can only control what we control, and so what's our contract with each other? We're going to tell, tell each other what we don't want to hear. We're going to give each other feedback. We're going to agree to disagree, but we're going to move forward together and hold each other accountable. So I think that starts yeah. with the team. And um, that's how I would think about it. Um, don't wait for the boss of your company to change all that. you got to change it. And in those moments we were talking about, like in hindsight, I would have gone back and gone like, wait a minute, that's not cool. You can't do that. But you learn that.
1: Right. What else? Anything else?
2: Yeah. Hi,
1: Emily Reynolds. Hi, Emily. Hi. Um, You talk about intuition uh, as a guiding factor in making some of your career decisions. How did you use it to make some of your leadership decisions as you were trying to innovate, and to what degree did you listen to it or try to dismiss it, and how important was it?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question. I actually shared some stuff on social today from Daniel Kahneman, the uh, the Nobel laureate, about, <coughs> about how your intuition can be wrong, which I think is also something we have mm-hmm. to remember, uh, um, is that your intuition, he talks about confidence and, and that. Um, so I just... To me, that gut check tells me I'm on to something. And I'm just, I, it doesn't tell me the answer. It just tells me, I, it's like a divining rod, right? I mean, I'm not sure. Maybe even a divining rod tells you there's water there. To me, it just tells you there's water in that direction. Mm. But it's also just, um, it's practice. And that's what I liked about that Kahneman piece, that, that partly you have to be aware of patterns. And so what basically his premise of study was intuition is you have to find something that's repeatable, i.e. a pattern. You have to um, have some experience and then you have to like have some feedback. And so I like that. And so to me the pattern recognition was really critical. I used my curiosity to overcome my fear and my introversion and it was what took me out into the world. It let me get outside. Most of my colleagues were looking inside. I was able to get outside because I was curious and you start to see patterns. And when you see patterns, it's not like you've, you've seen the future. You're just seeing things that are there to be seen, and it gives you incredible confidence. So clean tech, wasn't like, oh, my God, like I had this vision. It's clean tech. The patterns were there to be seen. Digital coming in media, digital coming to industry, the patterns are there to be seen. What are you going to do about it? So that's how I would say um, it's very rarely like, I've divined this idea. Mm. At least for me, it's never that way, and I, I never feel like I've been about original ideas as much as seeing patterns and then thinking what are the ideas that can come out of that.
1: You do talk about um, building on that. You talk about one of the campaigns that you were building, where you were in a you're in a room with a whiteboard, and people are just building on the ideas, and it it felt like pr- it, probably one of the most magical team yeah. exercises that you'd had. Um, ch- tell the group a bit about what that that activity was and maybe what what you think made that team so unique and different and magical so we can try to recreate that.
2: Yeah, and I've heard this from people who work from you. So I would say you seem like somebody who you you've really created this kind of team magic. And when you have it it's like so special. When and I And it's trust. Right? It is still built built trust, trust yeah. right? And and it's listening. And so what you're talking about I think I called it whiteboard zen. It's just this it's this moment when you're kind of the give and take and you have yeah. such trust that like you're pulling the markers out of each other's hands, you're marking each other right. out, you're riffing, you're laughing, you're yelling, and it's that moment of just yeah. pure flow when you and the team are just trusting. Yeah. That the ideas are going to be there, yeah. uh, and you're trusting the conflict. I love those moments. Yeah. I, I working for me to have had that. That was worth it. Yeah, totally. That's. Do you feel that way?
1: I get. Yeah. I mean, when you have those moments too, it's it spoils you a bit because when you get to do that kind of work that you love with people that you love, yeah. then you're kind of spoiled because everything else is you know, it work that's interesting with people that are smart.
2: Yeah. Right? No, exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah. And and um, I think it's back to that um, agreement that. We're not all going to agree. We're going to build on each other. totally. Um, and yet, at the same time, you need to go away and have um, solitary idea generation, mm-hmm. too. So, you know, everybody has pressure to brainstorm. And I don't want right. to sound like not we'd always. all come and we'd come out with this brilliance after these sessions. They just got us a little bit further. And then everyone had to go away and right. incubate and the ideas um, yeah. and then come back and do it again. And sometimes the time wasn't right. <clears throat> you weren't in the mood. And you have to call it. Like, we're not, we're not into this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, The one thing that we talked about
1: a little bit about this in the cab right here, but there's a part of the book where you describe corporations today, or at least GE in that moment, um, being very systematic about the results and the processes and to the point where we almost take the humanity out of what we're doing. Um, Do you think companies are still like that today? And based on what can we all do to put the humanity back in?
2: Yeah, I'm really worried about it. It was another reason I wrote the book. I talk in the book about the imagination gap, which to me is where possibility for the (coughs) future goes to die. Um, And why do we have an imagination gap? It's because people want reliability, certain data, always more data, always more data. um, And they want to take the time to analyze the data. Yet we're increasingly disrupted by a new kind of change that we seemingly came out of nowhere, yet If you looked, the patterns were there, Um, and and we're asked to solve new problems in new ways, and yet we think the way we solved it in 1990 is the way it's going to be solved today. And so I worry about this imagination gap, and it's fueled by this really short-termism. I think it's Mm -hmm. private companies and public, but especially public companies. The short-termism, we're afraid to take a risk on something. We're afraid to try something new. And we mostly are just afraid. We're afraid of not knowing. And so that, I think, is a real challenge for us. And I I know we have some folks here in, in, in the investment space. And I can tell you in all my work in innovation and starting a couple of venture groups, I never once, never once had an investor ask me, how are you seeding the future? Right. What problems are we trying to solve in the future? How do we think about that? So it's a lot of pressure on a leader to push for those when, they're, when some of their stakeholders aren't asking for it. So it takes a really special leader, I think, to fight for yeah. some of that humanity, the empathy, the failure that comes with trying to start new things. Mm-hmm
1: and celebrate it instead and
2: celebrate things. it yeah. yeah instead of saying well you're an idiot yeah. you know how how could you yeah and when you based on your
1: incredible journey what advice would you give this group to um to be a more
2: emergent leader to be a more <clears throat> um
1: to help fill that Im- Im- imagination gap
2: yeah Um, I, when I start the, I open the preface of the book, the introduction with um, me going to talk to the CIA. Like, what? Why are you, like, Mm -hmm. but I like this as an example. One, they were, they, after 9-11, you may recall there was a congressional hearing in the 9-11 commission, and they indicted the CIA for, um, for a failure of imagination. And out of that, the CIA did something really interesting. They had to open themselves up. Remember, the failure was they couldn't see that there was a new kind of terrorism that had emerged. It was more grassroots. And so they opened themselves up. They had to start to work with new kind of terrorism, (laughs) terrorist experts. They had to get on the grassroots. They had to invite advisors in. They had to invite people from companies like me to say, here's a way to think about change. So I think that's what you can do is, one, open yourself up to new ideas, new perspectives, new ways of doing. Go on these field trips. Be out there in the world looking at pattern recognition. Challenge yourself to go find things that are weird, especially things that are weird. Uh, here's, a, here's an exercise. Think back a decade ago to maybe something that you thought was silly, never going to happen. I don't know, Jackie, when you think mm-hmm. back a decade, something that seemed weird that now is mainstream today. Is there something that comes to mind when you think about that? Um, a decade ago. So it in been like 2008, 2000. Maybe Snapchat. Snapchat. Like think of all the like social media. And, Why would you want to disappear? But it's a social media sure. in many ways, right? mean yeah. Facebook was just, <laughs> uh, right, right. Like right. ephemeral content. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe some other things like I was just in Las Vegas and there was the 50,000 people at the cannabis convention. I wasn't oh, right. at that one. I would have been right. much more fun. That would have been totally normal to me. Right? It would have been. <laughs> 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 Jackie's telling us <laughs> a lot about herself in this <laughs> Let me go back to Colorado. Yeah. But I um, the think they'd be legal and medical. Um, you know, so right. you think yeah. about these things. <laughs> now think forward 10 years. Um, you know, what's, what are some things that uh, are your... And so it's your job. I don't care what your job is in right. the company. It's your job to know a few of those things um, that are emerging. Um, and maybe just some things to do on your everyday life. Um, one, go, go see things that are different. <clears throat> we're in New York City. I mean, what a place of innovation. Yeah. Um, pick up a different magazine next time you're in Grand Central or heading out on a plane. Um, pick out a magazine of something yeah. you would never read. Yeah. Challenge yourself to think about something really different. What are the thoughts that come out of it?
1: Beth talks about truffle hunting. And if you've ever gone, tr- has anybody gone truffle hunting? Have you? We- I have. I've gone truffle hunting.
2: Were, were you like smoking weed at the same time? I sp- was- <laughs> <laughs> You know I wasn't, but it would
1: be a good combination. Let's do that. Let's go discover that. Exactly. exactly. Anyway, these dogs go find this truffle. And when you said the word truffle hunting, I thought it's such a good analogy because that's what we're all out there trying to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I highly recommend truffle hunting. But. Yeah,
2: it's because basically, you know, you're trying to decipher, decipher the patterns a little bit. And, you know, if people who are good at truffle hunting start to be able to see the truffles from the leaves. Right. And all those things. Right. And that's what you're seeing it's in solid. the patterns. And so... Everyone has to be good at that yeah. um, to figure out how do you keep up with the pace of change and be yeah. this leader who's ready to deal with what's new. I guess I'd sum it this way. The old's going away and the new's emerging. And so they mm. both are true at the same time. So don't sit and wait, well, just when this is done, then I can focus on the new. No, you so have So how to do you fo- live in that in-between, though? That is a very hard place for a it lot of people really hard. to live in there. Who Most of us don't like it. You have to get somewhat comfortable with ambiguity. You have to be okay saying, I don't know. Um, I always like when I'll come to a meeting like this to say, you know, what are one or two trends you're spotting? What's something you're dealing with? So, you're, again, you're mm-hmm. doing pattern recognition, but be okay. Yeah. Like, I don't know the okay. answer. Can you say to the group you work with, I don't know? Let's you're to here find to out. figure it out. Yeah. And I think increasingly we need mm-hmm. team, uh, roles in our teams of people whose job it is to figure it out. To just go out and assign Have a team that luxury. to say, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's one person. Maybe it's one-tenth of yeah. a person's time to go figure it out.
1: Yeah. All right, I'm coming back out to you guys before we wrap. Questions?
2: You talk about early in the book working with Jack Welch and how he inspired and brought together a group of 300,000-plus employees you both have managed big complex teams and I'm just interested to hear you talk about even just tactically, how do you think about inspiring teams, particularly when you're going through disruption or challenging times, you talked about his handwritten notes or, you know, how, how he touched individual pieces um, of, or persons on different teams. So how do you think about that kind of soft skill of leadership and what have you found effective? Yeah. And I'm gonna, I think we should have Jackie answer that too. I, um, uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think nothing is what, what Meredith's talking about. Um, you know, Jack Welch was really good at um, sort of the human touch, so was Jeff Immelt. Uh, most good leaders I've worked with have been. Jack would take out of this felt-tip pen. He'd write you this note. Um, there was a good and a bad side he would he had this phrase like you're either a pig or a prince you were never a princess You're either a pig or a prince and you didn't want to be a pig like he would be like you're a pig you're a pig you messed up i'm telling you it was very candid or you're a prince like wow i'm a prince like sometimes you get a princely bonus like on the spot like this is so amazing here's a check and a note for me so like you felt And he made it very personal. Uh, When I worked at NBC, um, Bob Wright and his wife, Suzanne, who since she's passed away, but um, they made it so personal. They would Mm -hmm. always send gifts to your kids. They would call like she would send notes to your spouse. She made it Mm -hmm. about the family uh, of the extended family. And I always thought recognizing, you know, um, recognizing people's families was always Mm -hmm. a good way. So for myself, I think just trying to get to know the people I work with as people Um, Trying to go out to lunch. Go and just get to understand what's on their mind. Try to find, what do they like to do? What are their passions? Um, That was always, for me, what I felt most comfortable doing was getting to know their stories and sometimes ask them, what's your story? Like, where'd you come from? Uh, Understanding what they bring with them. I mean, sometimes people act strange, you think, but when you understand where they came from, you're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, that's why they're doing right. it right they had 17 brothers and sisters <laughs> they're competitive right. Right. Um, so i think that's that would be for me just get to know them as people just don't think of them as your employees or your colleagues yeah. how about you 100 percent.
1: yeah i was actually when when you um as you were talking i was i was watching uh 60 minutes on sunday did any of you see the the president bush Feature, um, there was this wonderful um, clip where where um, he's been interviewed by his granddaughter, and he says it's a question about legacy, and he says, "People will remember what I did wrong. I hope they remember what we also did right." Mm-hmm. And what's so amazing that. about that statement is they'll they'll remember what I did wrong. They'll remember what we did right. Mm-hmm. And I thought that is that like sort of the epitome of 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 that to me too is that you. You know, you know, you know is, is ever hung as an individual. We we win as a team, and if there is a problem, I'll take the hit, and we'll go back at it. But there's something about that that I just thought was such an amazing leadership trait that's that we're going to see on display tomorrow. And is that something
2: that you do you, you espouse that so. we?
1: I hope so. I hope that there is. I hope there's a we. I hope there is. Um, I've always believed that. Every single one of us are a piece of a puzzle and we all make that together we are something. Yeah. Individually we're you know, we're individuals. And so um, the notion of a, a team of leaders versus a leadership team is a is fundamentally different it to really me and how do we actually get to a point where we are a leadership team, and yeah. we are really completing. We're, we're together. We are a puzzle that is much much stronger. I like that it's as a puzzle.
2: I mean back to the emergent leader thing. I think that that notion of more mission-based teams. Right, you're coming together as a mission, yeah. whether it's the mission for the broader good or just the mission you have to accomplish in the next two months or two years. Yeah, that's a great way. I think to it's like us solving yeah. this mission. The other thing that I I
1: learned um, is kind of goes to the weird. I had a consultant come in once that many thought was weird. But he did this thing where he he gave us a stone, and at every meeting we had to first check in, and you couldn't speak unless you had the stone. And so it would sound something like this. Um, I'm Jackie, I'm I'm excited to check in. Um, This morning I had a baby that's really sick and threw up on me, so I was an hour late to work, so I'm really not fully with it today. Um, But glad to be here, and everybody had to check in. And it sounds super weird, but when you understand where people are at before you actually leap into that's something, that's a really good one. Yeah, you act it, a lot changes in that yeah. moment. Yeah, that's a good practice. Yeah, yeah. It, it, but it, yeah, imagine adults passing a stone. Like, there's <laughs> other ways to do this yeah. for sure. But it, the notion of it was good. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm coming over here. Somebody, yeah.
0: My name is Emily. Hi. Hi, Emily. Um, I had a question around kind of ideas and when you have them, and um, you know. I was thinking about it while you were talking about how at the dawn of the invention of the automobile, they said the data would have showed that people wanted a faster horse. Right. So when you're thinking about ideas and trying to take them to leadership, if you're not in a leadership position, and it's maybe <clears throat> not quantifiable yet, how do you go about that? How do you navigate the politics and the things around that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I. I Learn from a lot of trial and error, um, but I would say I learned to position it as here's a hypothesis. Here's a hypothesis. And kind of what if? And might this be true? And let's go figure it out. Let's do some tests. Uh, often I might have done a little test on my own or with the team before I brought it forward to somebody who had to make a decision. So it wasn't like I needed permission to go and do it. But I said, here's some evidence. And now what if this is true? Can we do it bigger? That was something, so what I would caution against, and this is learning through experience, is it's really tough to go in and and go, here's my idea, uh, or you know what you should do. Um, And often think about it, when you're first pitching an idea the first time, probably you barely know what you're saying. Imagine the person who's hearing it for the first time they don't know what you're talking about, especially if it's like it's a car, not right. a, a horse. A horse. Right. Uh, I remember pitching solar and, and even autonomous vehicles in, in my company and people, <laughs> you know, they, they didn't want to hear it. Right. And so just keep that in mind. Either you're not being clear because you don't know yourself what it is. Blockchain, what are you talking about? Um, or they don't want to hear it. So um, get feedback. You know, make it a hypothesis. Okay, what part isn't clear? Could you give me some feedback? Um, ask other people before you take it to mm-hmm. the big boss. That's another good way is to try to get some feedback from some of your colleagues, you know, maybe a lunch group that you can sit down and say, give me some feedback. Those would be things i do before you take it to the, to the big presentation. And back to what we said, even a no, if you really believe in it, don't Not take yet. that as a no. Yeah. Just say, i got to find a different way to come back with that story. Great.
3: You. Hi, I'm hi. Audrey Pass. Hi, Audrey. Um, hi, I consider myself to be, um, and others would probably agree, an agitator and a disruptor, mm-hmm. and <laughs> a troublemaker a little bit. Um, and uh, I actually don't think Bloomberg ice, ice cream sounds half bad. Jackie, it doesn't. Right <laughs> away. I, I think it'd be very healthy. I know. I was thinking about this yeah. on the session, but anyhow, I'm curious to know how. Um, I, I enjoy taking risks. I'm a risk taker. I'm bold. I like calculated risk. I'm curious to know how you managed – you said you were enabled to take these risks and and failure is going to happen and that you were able to sort of fail and do it early and um, before it does too much damage, I guess, and move on. I'm curious how you managed that with your leader and your your leadership and your companies, allowing that – I haven't found too many public companies who are willing to – allow that kind of risk taking you know and and allow failure to occur without saying you're out and i realize you said you almost got fired but yeah. how did you find you were able to manage to repeatedly take those calculated risks and come back for more
2: yeah well a couple, partly you're sort of it's what we've already talked about sort of recognizing within yourself you can take those risks so there's that personal journey and i had to build that up in myself a few more, a few key points. I had a great champion. I mean, I worked for a long time in, with Jeff Immelt, who was the head of GE in the time I worked there. He was a great champion for people to try things. He wanted more new ideas. He wanted risk takers because the culture had been very precision, Six Sigma, and again, that's good for certain things, but it's not good for re, for innovation. If you think right. if you're trying to eradicate defects, you don't want to fail. Um, you're trying to make every quarter consistently quarter after quarter after quarter as a public company you do not want to miss So how do you try to get people to take risks so any risk someone was willing to take it was encouraged in a small way but that's the point you're taking the smaller risk you're not betting the whole company um, people who bet the whole company um, that's ha- that's a hard proposition wow. but um, f- when we first got into clean tech you know I-, I was allowed the room and the team to find our way we had to get proof points, right? We had to, the first thing we did is find customers who wanted to dream with us about a clean tech future. Dream out 10 years. We gave them virtual currency. If you were to put our money at work, would you invest in solar or wind? That helped validate the risk because there were a few early adopter customers saying, yeah, I'm there. There's nothing like customer money right. to say you should do this. So little steps like that gave people confidence and I found often the sales team was the hardest one to win over. And so knowing kind of where your sticky points were to take risk right. and try to work through that would have been the way to do it. But I don't want to leave you the impression, I, I don't know that I'm as bold as you sound like you are. Um, <laughs> I had to summon that from somewhere, and I was more of a quiet instigator, and I, back to Mm -hmm. your question, those, I'd see those patterns, and I just, they had to do it, had to believe it, so, so it was less about being bold, but like, this is going to happen, we have to be there, Mm -hmm. Um, and I had to learn some of that boldness and courage, and having champions really helped me, so if you're in a position to champion people, please do it. Um, yeah. Encourage them, and I'm sure you do with your boldness. That's probably the best thing you can do is encourage people to take those risks. Yeah. So in the book you talk about a head of GE Lighting,
1: I think it was, that had his fight song. Yeah. He had his team. Everybody on the team had to have a fight song. Yeah. So
2: what's your fight song? Yeah. Um, it depends on the day okay. of my fight song um, and what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, but my go-to fight song, and I'm, I, trust, I have trust here, you is so geeky but it's build me up buttercup from like I <laughs> like love it. growing up because it's a I confidence it. song right I don't know what the song even means but to me it's my confidence I need to go look song, that one up right build me a buttercup baby just to let you know it's like I from the 60s it. or something <laughs> I don't know it's so sappy but that's my fight it. song what's yours I love
1: it mine would be um it might be sappy too. Mine is uh, Nikki Yanofsky, who opened the Olympics like a decade ago, and it's called "I Believe." You guys, anybody? No, it's it's random. Nobody, whatever. I think that song. I remember.
2: I believe. No. I believe. You know what he's really
1: saying, but. It is. It's so motivating. It's not. It's not like a. You know, this is your fight song. Like you're not. It's not a drum beater. Yeah. But it's incredibly motivating. I will so look, I'll that look up. I'll look up Buttercup. You yeah. look up. I believe. Yeah.
2: What What this guy did. He was really great because they were out. They were. They were out to win an account that hadn't been hadn't been won for twenty years. And he used it to rally the whole team. And he said, we're going to win this. And we're going to each of us tell your fight story. His was like Katy Perry or something really unexpected. And then what he did, I love this, he created a playlist. And then it was all about smart, connected devices. And whenever you walked into their building, it played the team's uh, fight songs. Isn't that awesome? Uh, it's such a great such a good idea, lesson, isn't it? So yeah. steal that one. I
1: thought it was a really yeah, great it's one. Yeah, a good one. All right, so Beth closes the book the way I'm going to close tonight, just because it's indicative of the impact you're having. Um, you just have to believe two things. Tomorrow can be better than today, and you have the power to make it so. You are not a robot. You are a change maker. You can do this. So... Thank you.
2: Thanks, Jackie. Thank yeah. you
1: for the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. And now you can have a cocktail.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser-Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Chrisanne Grize, Kylie Harris, Elizabeth Roberts, Mandy Carr, Andrea Goldstein, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. For more information about Coffee Break with New York Wiki, go to nywici.org slash podcast. That's newyorkwiki.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.